The Energy Gang is brought to you by Rena Sola, a tier one solar cell and module manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company is now offering a bundled solution for residential installers looking to reduce procurement costs and drive down the cost of projects. Call 415-570-2647 to find your local representative or go to renasola.us. For the week of May 14th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in our nation's fair capital city of Washington, D.C. This week, we are joined by energy analyst Chris Nelder for a discussion on peak oil and the sustainability of unconventional fossil fuels. Then we'll look at Bank of America's decision to phase out investments in coal mining, and we'll end with Hawaii's decision to go 100% renewable. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me as always to share their perspectives on these stories and more. Catherine's in D.C. with me. She's a partner with 38 North Solutions. How are things across the city over there? It's great. It's a beautiful spring day. In New York City, hopefully a beautiful spring day for him. It's Jigger Shah, the president of Generate Capital. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I was able to try a cocktail last night, and you have another one planned for this evening, so things are going well. Just one? Hey, you got to pace yourself at my age. What was the cocktail? It was a Manhattan. I'm a big fan of Sazerac's. Yes. It's my go-to drink. Yes. Our guest is in San Francisco. He's an energy analyst and a writer with expertise in oil markets and renewable energy. He's a friend of us all. And I'm sure he likes to enjoy a tasty cocktail as well. I've had a few with him before. It's Chris Nelder. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Long-time fan of the show, so it's a pleasure to be a guest for a change. So you've actually had an interesting transition from software engineer to solar system designer to now a well-known energy analyst. How did you make that jump from software to energy? I had a friend that I knew from the software world before who had started a solar uh, company. And uh, I was looking to get out of software. And he said, well, why don't you come join me? So I did. I jumped into uh, designing and selling residential and commercial solar systems around the Bay Area here. Uh, And then after that, I became an energy expert and a writer and uh, moved on from there. Yeah, I've had a a winding path. Well, you found your way into oil and gas. And I want to talk about uh, some of the topics you've written on, most notably peak oil. Um, this is, of course, a subject that comes up a lot in your writing. And it's a, it's a theory lately that's gotten a lot of criticism because of the unforeseen surge in tight oil and gas production over the last six or seven years. Many in the media are calling peak oil dead. You're not one of them. Uh, in fact, uh, I think you believe it's possible that oil production in the U.S. is close to hitting a peak. How do you figure that? And explain where you think the peak oil argument is today. Right. Okay. So first, uh, I want to clarify what peak means since there's still a lot of confusion about that. It's just the maximum rate of production. It's not about Malthusianism. It's not about prices and it's not about beliefs. It's just a number. There's also some confusion about what oil is. So let me clarify that. Um, As of 2014, the rate of world oil production was about 78 million barrels a day. And that's crude plus condensates. 
And there's also about 93 million barrels a day of what's called all liquids. So the difference between those two numbers, those extra liquids, are not oil, and they're generally not usable in the same way as oil. So most peak oil studies refer to the crude plus condensate number, the 78 million barrels a day. When that number gets to its highest level, we'll be at peak oil. That's all it is. Uh, so generally, those who talk about the reality of peak oil are talking about numbers, while those who dismiss it are using rhetoric. So with that out of the way, um, my scenario was that U.S. production would reach its second peak this year after the previous 1970 peak. Uh, and that was my best guess based on a careful examination of a lot of technical details. Uh, the decline rates of the existing wells, the rate at which new wells will be drilled this year at a time when oil prices are too low to support much drilling, the appetite of banks and other investors to buy more oil sector debt because tight oil or, or fracking, as it's often called, has largely been done out of debt. Uh, my geopolitical outlook and, of course, my view on what oil prices are likely to be, which will dictate how much drilling gets done. So my scenario for the U.S. was just part of a forecast that I wrote up in 2011 that oil production was likely to peak in late 2014 or early 2015. Um, my last actual formal forecast was made at the end of 2013, in which I said that in late 2014 or early 2015, the Goldilocks period of, of relatively stable prices we'd had since 2010 would come to an end and kick off another phase of volatility. So that timing was absolutely spot on. Um, however, along with just about every other analyst on Earth, I thought that demand was going to remain more robust than it was. Um, in particular, I noticed weak demand from China around August and September of last year, uh, and that's uh, when oil prices started to crash, along with the prices in demand for iron ore, coal, and a lot of other commodities. I mean, China's been the growth driver of the world. So the oil price decline really began in September, um, although few people acknowledge that, and most people look at OPEC's decision in November not to cut production as the main reason why prices crashed. But the crash actually started months earlier, and nobody's asking OPEC to do something about coal and iron ore prices. Okay, so <clears throat> let's talk about earlier predictions. Um, really, the, the, the boom in unconventional oil and gas has surprised a lot of people. And many people believe that those worried about peak oil are not focused on technological change or behavior for that matter. And you and I have talked about this. You know, no one really saw how much America's fracking revolution was going to transform the, the global oil market like it has. And when you look at uh, drilling operations, many of the companies out in the field are continuing to drop their operating expenses. They're getting bitter at drilling wells. Um, and many would argue that the technological innovation that we're seeing in the oil industry will allow us to continue to access these tight reserves in a fairly economic way. What do you say to the argument that those worried about peak oil do not take into account the incredible technological innovation we see in the industry? Well, technology isn't some sort of endless savior that, uh, like the industry proponents make it out to be. Um, in reality, innovation in the oil and gas sector is very slow. Uh, horizontal drilling and hydrofracking, the two technologies that enabled the tight oil boom in the U.S., have been around forever. Uh, directional drilling since the 1930s, hydrofracking since the 1940s. Uh, George Mitchell had, in fact, been working on combining those technologies to unlock tight oil. 
uh, which we've also known about since at least the 1940s, all this shale stuff. Uh, he's been trying to do that since the 1980s. Uh, enhanced oil recovery technologies, better data analytics, all the other supposedly new technologies that are going to increase production in the future have been around for a long, long time. But let me flip that around on you because many people would say the same thing about solar, right? Well, we've been trying to commercialize solar since the 70s and the early 80s. What makes you think that it's going to be economic today? What we see are the downstream innovations that are shaving pennies off of installations. And we're sort of seeing the same thing in drilling operations today. And I think a lot of people have been surprised at how many drilling operations have stayed afloat and how much production we've seen given the drop in oil prices, which shows, uh, and many people are not willing to make a full conclusion about how sustainable these operations are, but it is surprising that you still see many drilling rigs um, operating and producing at such low oil prices. Yeah, I wouldn't use that analogy at all. Um, the price of, the cost of producing solar has continuously dropped. The cost of producing oil has continuously increased. The only reason why the tight oil boom ever happened is because we got into a solid era of $100 oil. So that enabled this very expensive tight oil to uh, come to production. Um, the only reason – so, so this recent price crash we've had over the last nine months um, isn't because – uh, uh, all this stuff that we're doing in tight oil is so cheap that it drove down the global price. Um, and in fact, we found that as the prices crashed, a lot of the rigs are getting laid down in the United States because they can't make any money uh, at these prices. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not at all the same thing. Uh, unconventional oil like we have from tight oil is simply a lot more expensive than the conventional old oil uh, that it's replacing because that stuff is depleting. So uh, tight oil is a, is a short-term bonus enabled by a very high price regime, uh, not the outcome of a long decline in prices like with solar. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing is that David Einhorn, who's, you know, billionaire uh, hedge fund manager at Greenlight Capital, uh, put out a 92 uh, slide presentation about why he thought fracking was basically a negative return on investment and that Pioneer in particular is losing 20 cents for every dollar that they invest um, and that the reason that they were really able to do so much is because they were able to raise as, as an industry uh, $200 billion of junk bonds um, to keep things going. I mean, I, you know, I, I wonder, do you think with all the innovation and all the cost cutting in the supply chain that you know, fracking even makes money at a hundred bucks. Well, that's that's exactly the point, and I thought David's presentation was excellent. Uh, it was very well done. You know, to a modest extent, these cost-cutting and, and improvements in technology and productivity will yield some benefits and dampen the effect of the price crash. But for the most part, these producers are just giving us a narrative about that with very little actual data, and they have to tell a good story because they need big infusions of debt to keep going, as David Einhorn noted. And of course, David Einhorn was really late to this party. I mean, there's a lot of us that have been saying this for literally years. So all these improvements... Except he actually made hundreds of millions of dollars off of being late to the party. Yes, good for him. So all of these improvements might allow more producers to stay alive until prices come back up, but they're not going to get around the fundamental long-term fact that unconventional oil is much more expensive. Uh, so, you know, no matter what we do, at some point, technology will lose out to geology. 
uh, unless we're willing to pay uh, much, much higher prices. Uh, when that point is, is hard to say, but considering how poor quality and difficult the resources are that we're drilling today, uh, it seems likely that, you know, the peak will be in the near future. I mean, we used to be able to drill a shallow hole in Texas and a gusher would shoot out. Now we're artificially fracturing very poor quality rock, thousands of feet underground, drilling through miles of water and then miles of rock out in the Gulf of Mexico, spending billions of dollars to get to the point where we can even try to drill a hole in the Arctic, and so on. You know, it, it now takes hundreds of rigs to produce the same amount of oil that one rig could produce 60 years ago. So, Chris, from a policy perspective, why does this matter? I mean, it, we don't really use oil for, uh, for electricity production. We really use it more for transportation and process. And when you think about um, the alternatives there, they're not great. I mean, you have electric vehicles, which, of which we sell very few. Um, you don't really have any other alternative fuels taking off like a rocket ship. I'm just trying to figure out, like, you know, aren't we stuck with oil? You know, the alternatives don't seem to have caught a foothold. Well, that's right, and I, I think it's really important that we should think about um, what this what this means. Uh, you know, I think that it's going to be very difficult, and a lot of it depends on your timing, right? So, if you think that peak oil is in the near future, uh, and you start looking at well, how quickly can we adapt to uh, declining oil and much higher prices? You know, we'd have to be deploying uh, electric vehicles or something else at a very rapid rate. If you think that the peak is way off in the future, then maybe it's not such an urgent problem. I do think it is a very near-term problem, and actually. Uh, my main uh, recommendation would be to forget about cars and, and go to rail, which is what the rest of the world has done, the, at least those who don't have oil. Um, so, you know, those who claim the technology will always produce more oil and gas are expressing faith, not facts. And that's fine. You know, I have faith, too, about the progress of renewables. But we should be really careful about basing our policies and our economic expectations and our national priorities on faith. Um, <clears throat> the data tells a very different story than faith, and most people only pay attention to price, not the underlying data. So when we did have a, we did have an entire office, remember, on the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. <laughs> <laughs> you know, most people only pay attention to oil prices, not the underlying data. So when prices are high, they think peak oil is a real problem, and when prices are low, they think it isn't. But depletion never sleeps. You know. Oil keeps declining uh, in terms of its quality and its availability, and, and the price keeps going up. So I think it is really important for us to start thinking about things like funding rail. Let me ask you, Chris, about renewables, uh, go back a little bit here, and about technology, because Stephen sort of alluded to this. In your book, A Profit from the Peak, which was in 2008, you and, and your co-author said that by 2020 or 2025, we will have peaked with all major sources of energy, including renewables. And so with solar prices dropping and all these other technologies, that these flexible resources, distributed generation, energy storage, demand response, efficiency, CHP, all of those – do you think that's still true that we are going to peak with renewable deployment or, or do you see a real shift? Uh, I think, well, obviously renewables and, and the evolution of uh, grid power on all those different dimensions you mentioned um, has been uh, really rapid. And, you know, we're, we're at a very different place now than we were in 2007. Um, however, uh, which is when I wrote the book, however, when, when you have, uh, if, if, if oil declines at a very rapid rate, and coal and, and 
uh, gas uh, soon after. Uh, what you're trying to do then is replace about 80% of the world's primary energy supply with, with renewables. Um, and depending on how fast fossil fuels decline, it could be very difficult to actually pick up all of that slack with, with renewables, even at the high growth rates that we've got. So um, whether or not the world, I mean, really the question that we're asking then is, are we able to continue running the world exactly the same way that we, that we do today, right, at the same level of energy consumption that we do today, and just switch out the fuels? Um, and I, I think the answer to that is still no. Uh, it depends on, uh, obviously, how quickly these things happen. Um, but I, I do think that we can... Uh, adapt to the decline of fossil fuels and the rise of renewables um, and still maintain a, a reasonably good quality of life if we continue to deploy renewables very aggressively as well as efficiency. So let's walk through your scenario. What should we start seeing over the next year or a couple of years? Do you have any benchmarks that we should be looking for where we'd know that the peak has occurred. And then I want to ask a secondary question, which is long-term, what does that look like? You know, uh, in, in the movie Collapse that I watched uh, many years ago with, with Michael Ruppert, yeah. who, you know, he, he paints this very dire picture of what the peak will look like. And just curious, um, you know, what your long-term vision is um, for, for how society responds and, and what the, the oil peak does to you know, our economy. But the first, what kind of markers should we be looking, be looking for in the next couple of years under your scenario? Right. So the U.S. scenario that I discussed earlier was based really on an earlier guesstimate uh, that I made around 2006, that the world production would peak around 2012, uh, because a lot of the models I was studying were converging on that year. But after the global financial crisis hit in 2008 and dampened demand, uh, I looked at the pace of the recovery and the new production coming online from the U.S. and figured that those things might delay the peak by roughly three years. So that's how I wound up with, with 2015. Um, it's, it's hard to know what will happen for the rest of this year, and we'll only know if my call was right several years after that. But in any case, it's been clear for years now that both the U.S. and the global peak would almost certainly come by 2020. And that production wouldn't rise well into the 2030s, as was forecast a decade ago. So, so now the debate has really shifted from when to why, from a so-called peak oil su peak supply argument to a peak demand argument. But that's really not a very interesting distinction, because when you get right down to the effects of either argument, they're pretty much the same. People find petroleum too expensive and try to switch to other modes of transportation. Um, but, of course, forecasting the prices and the timing of the peak is always at least as much of an art uh, as it is a science. So, so what can we look for? We can look for um, prices getting back up and then uh, people running into, uh, you know, basically consumer price tolerance, uh, a rejection of, of high prices when um, demand starts to fall again. This is such a so, fascinating concept to me, what consumers are willing to tolerate. And you and I have talked about this before. What do you think that consumer price sensitivity is, right? I mean, I think in your previous writing, you've put that ceiling somewhere around $120 a barrel uh, before we see a dramatic shift in demand. But before the recent glut, you know, oil prices were consistently above $100 per barrel, and we only saw incremental change. And, you know, consumer sensitivity appears to be much more elastic than many people claim. And I just am curious how you think consumers will respond and what that sensitivity level is. 
Right. Well, I think there's really two th- two ways we, we need to look at it. We need to look at what's the consumer sensitivity and then also what's the price sensitivity of the drillers. So we know that U.S. drillers started laying down their rigs over the last nine months when oil dropped below $70 a barrel. Uh, we know that a few U.S. Thai oil locations can make money when oil is at 40 and that others can't make money when it's 80. Uh, there's just a huge range because shale real sources are, are very variable. Uh, so you generally only hear about the good wells, but a new study by a veteran petroleum engineer found that 40% of the new wells in the Bakken and the Eagle Ford uh, can't yield a 10% rate of return at $80 bar- dollars a barrel uh, after one year of production. Um, also, we know that the big expensive so-called mega projects around the world, particularly in the Canadian tar sands, started getting canceled a year ago, long before the price crash, and uh, because they were too expensive. And that... Uh, cancellations really accelerated at the beginning of this year when oil prices fell into the 40s. So, you know, and when or if we ever find out what it actually <clears throat> costs Shell to produce oil in the Arctic, we may find that its break-even point is over $110 a barrel. We don't, we don't know yet. Uh, and, and generally, we can now see that the previous rule uh, of thumb, that it takes about $80 a barrel consistently to keep world supply going, uh, was about right. Um, so these are all difficult and highly technical questions, and it depends on which resources you're talking about. A lot of the data is kept secret, and the drilling can be distorted by a lot of things. So in the U.S., we need prices of over $70 or $80 a barrel to raise debt to keep drilling, but a lot depends on the debt market, you know, uh, which in turn depends on interest rates. If the Fed hadn't kept rates near zero since the financial crisis, we probably wouldn't have seen anything like the shale boom we just saw. Uh, the major producers of the Middle East, on the other hand, like Saudi Arabia, have, you know, they can actually produce oil at a break-even price of $20 a barrel, but their fiscal break-even prices to balance their budgets is over $100 a barrel. So for them, it's more a question of how long they want to draw down their capital reserves than it is of drilling costs. Uh, it can be in their best long-term interest to pump their oil at, at the maximum rate when prices are low in order to hang on to market share. Uh, and all these kind of things. So, uh, and then of course we have, you know, tight oil producers in the U.S. that are continuing to drill some wells but not completing them because prices are low. And then, you know, now we've got this so-called frack log, this backlog of, of wells that are waiting to be completed. Uh, and of course that can't go on forever because they need cash flow to service their big debt overhang. So there are all sorts of factors that complicate the picture and, and delay the effects of changing prices on how drillers actually respond and what do you think about people do you think people are capable of handling high prices i mean i i I think that people have a much greater tolerance to high prices than you might well okay so on the consumer side it's it's hard to say with serious accuracy uh we we just don't have the data in the u.s we know that there was price rejection in 2008 as oil went to 147 dollars a barrel and gasoline went over four dollars a gallon uh, because that's when consumption fell. But but you can't even separate that from the broader economic crash. So how much is that information worth? Uh, we could look at the data just since 2011, uh, after the recovery, which suggests that price sensitivity is around $3.50 a gallon. Below that price, demand picks up, and above it, demand tends to fall. Um, and, you know, that's evident to me in the data. 
Oil demand in general seems to have picked up pretty substantially when it recently fell below $70 a barrel. Uh, but we only have a few months of data on that, and the data is noisy. Uh, you can't make too much of it. And, of course, weather and driving patterns are, are part of that. Uh, but over a longer time series, the data suggests to me that it's very difficult for the global economy to generate any real economic growth when oil is over $100 a barrel, especially if you take China out of the picture. So, so this is our dilemma. We need $80 a barrel to keep producing oil. That's the floor. But over $100 a barrel, economic growth and consumer demand stalls out, which is why Stephen Kopitz called it the narrow ledge of oil prices. So uh, it looks to me like, in fact, consumers started driving more and buying more gas guzzlers when gasoline fell to under $3 a gallon uh, a couple months ago. Um, and the consumers tend to cut back when it's over $4 a gallon. So it's somewhere in that range. Um, and, and in fact, I'll point out that that when gasoline was under $2 a gallon in some parts of the country this past December, the U.S. posted the highest consumption ever for a December. There's a consensus in the press, Chris, that the peak oil argument is dead. And I'm, you, you are clearly one of the ones who's still outspoken. And I'm just curious what you think about that narrative that people in the peak oil community are no longer talking about this have stepped away, are completely silent or abandoned their arguments. Are you one of the lone people out there talking about this, or is there still a fairly robust intellectual and numbers-running um, cadre? Oh, yes. No, there's, there's still some of us out here uh, that are still looking at the numbers on a daily basis and discussing what they mean. Uh, <clears throat> you may not hear much about our point of view in the press, because as you pointed out, nobody cares anymore. Prices are cheap enough. Uh, people have gotten used to the prices, whatever, and nobody cares anymore, which is what it is. But, you know, um, just to look at, you know, past predictions, because I know you were curious about that. Uh, there have been a lot of them by a lot of different people, and it isn't some monolithic thing. Um, the originator of the peak oil concept, a geologist who worked for Shell named M. King Hubbard, made predictions that were actually remarkably accurate. And in 1956, when U.S. production was in its heyday, he said extraction in the lower 48 would reach its maximum between 1965 and 1970. And he was absolutely correct. It peaked in 1970. Uh, he also modeled a global oil peak somewhere around, sometime around 2000. Um, and actual production stopped growing at previous rates and hit a plateau at around 74 million barrels a day in 2005. Uh, it, it finally crept up over the last couple of years to 78 million barrels a day, but look what it took to do that. A quadrupling of oil prices, which is what made it possible to access tight oil. And those things were not considered viable in Hubbard's time, although Hubbard certainly anticipated that some of them eventually would be. Uh, so those who are motivated to put down the peak oil concept try to use the shale phenomenon as a reason to say that his theory has been invalidated. But in my view, his, his models were remarkably good, especially considering that no one believed anything of the kind in the 1950s. Uh, after that, in 1998, the geologists Colin Campbell and Jean Larere published an article in Scientific American called The End of Cheap Oil, which showed a model for the global peak of conventional oil around 2004 and suggested a peak for all liquids around 2010 and noted that some additional con unconventional sources like shale oil and biofuels could delay that somewhat. Uh, well, indeed, 2004 was the end of cheap oil. And, in, and the very beginning of very expensive oil, which brought on a little bit of these high-priced alternatives. But by that, uh, in, uh, by that time, um, Hubbard had actually adjusted his estimates uh, 
uh, in the 1970s um, and said that, you know, he thought we could extract a lot more oil in the future and that the ultimate production rates would be higher. But in fact, they, they didn't move the peak very much. You know, if you're looking for a way to disparage the ideal of peak oil, you could argue that Campbell and Larere were off by a few years or a few million barrels a day. But considering that they were very, very close with a prediction made 17 years earlier, uh, I'd say their model was pretty damn good. Uh, and and those, those are just the famous predictions, right? So there have been a lot of others, so, some good, some good, not so good. But when you're talking about a giant bell curve that spans about 200 years, given that it's a global market with thousands of producers and all this uncertainty, even, even being plus or minus a decade uh, is, is pretty good in my opinion. Um, and, 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 you know, that's on the peak oil side. So, so let's, look at the, let's look at the predictions of those who said that peak oil was nonsense uh, and, and that we would always have more abundant production. You know, just 10 years ago, when the peak oil notion was just gaining traction, uh, all the major agencies like EIA and IEA and IHS, where Dan Jurgen works, were saying that production would increase another 30 or 40 percent higher than it is today and that the long-term price of oil would stay around $40 a barrel. They completely missed the repricing of oil that happened in 2004. And nobody thinks we're going to get to 130 million barrels a day anymore. So, so on that score, I'd say the Pecos did a far better job of forecasting what was to happen. So, Chris, one... One last question from my side, which is, you know, so the Breakthrough Institute, you know, broadly speaking, and there's a few other folks as well, sort of just say um, technology will solve all problems, right? That this is sort of the, um, the, you know, sort of the great mantra is that, you know, I think they just recently published another essay on their website called The Return of Nature, How Technology Liberates the Environment, right? And so are you basically saying that you don't think technology can get us to sort of solving these problems that at some point we actually need to just use less and adopt a little bit more sacrifice? Yes, that, that's, that's essentially right. <clears throat> it's very easy to, to proclaim your faith and say that, that you know, technology will always solve all of our problems. Uh, it's, it's much harder when you actually try to figure out when and what and how much it costs. I mean, uh, you know, this all, peak oil, if you really want to understand it, gets very technical very quickly, and it revolves around a lot of different classifications of oil, definitions of reserves, all this other stuff that makes people's eyes glaze over. So, of course, it's going to be more popular to just say, oh, technology will save us, you know, forget about it. But, you know, uh, ultimately, this isn't a question about whose predictions are right or wrong or what your faith is. Uh, it's, it's a question about the future of humanity. You know, as Colin Campbell said, uh, an argument rages as to the date of the peak production in all categories of oil, which is imminent, but misses the point when what matters is the vision of the long decline that comes into sight on the other side of it. And, you know, I agree. This is what we should think about. It's, it's a scary thought. And rather than think about it, most people would prefer to find something, anything that can shoot down the messenger and pretend the whole concept was wrong. But, depletion never sleeps. This is not something that's easily dismissed. Once you've consumed oil, it's gone forever. And the resources that we have left <clears throat> are poor and they're difficult to produce. So we can shoot all the messengers and we can believe whatever we want. But as long as we keep consuming oil, there will be less of it left. And what's left will continue to diminish in quality. Chris Nelder is an energy analyst and writer He's the author of Profit from the Peak and Investing in Renewable Energy, and he joined us from San Francisco. Chris, a real pleasure. Thanks a lot for being here. Thank you all. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. 
Let's get a word in here about our sponsor, Renasola. Renasola has been manufacturing solar panels since 2008, but the company is also a major distributor. Renasola is now offering bundled equipment solutions as part of its distribution business. The company produces solar panels, inverters, and racking systems, and puts them all together to help you make your operations more efficient. Think about the savings in procurement and shipping costs you could realize by choosing Renasola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And think about the time you could save as well. Renasola has coast-to-coast -coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 global subsidiaries. Call 415-570-2647 to find your local rep today or go on over to renasola.us. A few years ago, Bank of America was a top target of environmentalists looking to shut down coal. The bank was one of the top backers of coal mining and coal power plants and came in at the bottom of the list among major banks financing renewables. Today, that has shifted. B of A announced this week it is phasing out its investments in coal mining over time, both for climate reasons and financial risk reasons. Executives also point out that the bank's renewable energy portfolio is three times bigger than its coal mining portfolio. Environmental groups have, that have pressured B of A over the years are thrilled. So what does this say about the health of the coal industry and about the shift among big banks generally? Jigger, um, you know, if you read the brief that they issued, they laid out a bunch of reasons for moving away from coal. I'm just curious, uh, internally, you know, how much do you think was about this broader environmental strategy and how much of it do you think was about activist pressure and these market pressures? I don't think that I, I, mean, I don't think that the activists had any role to play whatsoever. I mean, I, look, the thing about coal that people don't really understand is that the coal mining industry is completely and utterly worthless, right? So when you think about the market capitalization of ExxonMobil or BP or Shell, each of those companies is worth more individually than the entire coal mining mining industry um, put together. Right, the total market capitalization of the coal industry is less than like a hundred billion dollars. So the amount of business that Bank of America earns from that, or the amount of money that Calpers or Calsters is invested in the coal industry, is so tiny. It's pretty easy for them to divest. Most of the value in the coal industry is in the coal burners. Right, this is yeah. the electric utility industry that's actually burning coal, and that's harder. Nobody's really said, well, if we're going to divest from coal, we're going to divest from all the electric utility companies that actually burn coal. Right, whereas the oil industry is way, way, way harder to divest from, particularly when, you know, like in Norway, for instance, I mean, all of their money comes from oil. Well, I don't disagree with that assessment, but let me push back on the activist front because they've clearly created a culture of shame on mountaintop removal. They've pressured these banks for years, and it's been somewhat of a PR nightmare, at least in green circles. And so they've amassed tens of millions of dollars for the Beyond Coal campaign, and they really have created this culture uh, where it doesn't make sense from a public relations perspective for these banks to back these projects. Is there any merit in that argument that there really was a role for these activists? Of course. I mean, but you, but I think we're just conflating things, right? I mean, the reason why the Sierra Club started the entire Beyond Coal campaign was that Carl Pope realized that six coal plants early on 
hadn't actually even pulled the right permits necessary to start construction. So for like 100000 bucks, he was able to kill these coal plants just by you know, pointing out that they hadn't pulled the right permits. And then he got Aubrey McClendon to Chesapeake to give him a bunch of money to, to do that nationwide. And then Mike Brune was able to get Bloomberg to replace Aubrey so they didn't have to take natural gas money. But that's different than saying coal is a bad investment and therefore, should we, we should divest. And even if it's not a bad investment, you should, from a moral standpoint, not invest. I, you know, I just think that, that we're conflating the two. We should absolutely be getting away from coal because the level of innovation that we talked about in terms of tight oil doesn't exist in coal. It's not like coal technology has gotten far better in the last 20 years um, like oil technology has. Coal has actually gotten way more expensive and um, it's just not competitive with solar and wind and some of the other technologies today. But I just think that the reason why people are divesting from coal is that it's a bad investment, not because activists have done a great job of getting folks to to divest. Well, I also think there's writing on the wall that the coal plants are retiring. As you say, they're not as profitable. And with EPA regs coming, it's just going to be harder and harder to make a nickel with coal. Well, on the EPA regs, the activists should take full credit for that. I mean, I think the EPA regs took a tremendous amount of work from the activists. And I also think the activists should take full credit for making it harder for Duke and other people to say one thing and do another. And so, you know, from that perspective, the activists, I think, played a critical role. I just think this notion that investors like pension funds who are are divesting are divesting because the activists have made it painful for them to face their children is just simply not true. So speaking of conflation, I've seen some speculate that this is an indicator that big banks are thinking about divesting completely from fossil fuels. And what you're saying is that divesting from the horrible coal mining sector where returns are difficult and you have mining companies that are going into bankruptcy protection and you know, you're, they're losing thousands of jobs, that's much different than divesting from the oil sector, which is much more ingrained into the global economy and is much more complicated and offers higher returns. Yeah. And I also think, by the way, that the Koch brothers are going to make a mint off of this. You know, I think once the banks leave the coal industry, coal assets will become worth only a dollar. The Koch brothers are going to buy all of them and figure out a way to make money off of them in the same way that a lot of people made money off of tobacco stocks after the the 1990s um, settlement, um, the tobacco companies went international and made a ton of money, you know, selling cigarettes around the world. So, I mean, the coal industry still has intrinsic profit left in them, just the investment banks can't figure out how to make money off of them, so the Koch brothers will. Well, let's finish up with some big news out of Hawaii. Last week, the Hawaii legislature passed a bill that would require 100% renewable electricity by 2045. It's a, it's a landmark step. No state has proposed something this ambitious. And the bill was passed by a vote of 74 to 2, which is uh, a sign that lawmakers and, of course, their regulatory counterparts who we've talked about are really embracing the changes underway in the electric sector. Catherine, you've been on the, folks, you've been on the phone with folks in Hawaii. What's the reaction in the state? Yeah, they say a year ago, if you were talking about 100% RPS, you would have been laughed at. It was pie in the sky. Um, And now it's just, okay, what year do we want to reach it in? (laughs) Um, 
she the, the one of my colleagues that I talked to, uh, Crystal Kua from uh, Sun Edison, said you know it was giving me some context for background. And really, what happened is there's this whole background of Hiko who really got people annoyed because they wouldn't interconnect their rooftop solar. The the rates are extremely high, you know, 500 bucks a month for, you know, and you have solar and they won't interconnect you. So people were getting really, really annoyed. Then they realized that NextEra was potentially going to come in and buy it. They see what NextEra was like in Florida and everybody got really nervous. So they thought, well, let's, you know, let's see, how are we doing? What can we do? So the consumer advocate in Hawaii uh, testified that in Hawaiian Electric's report to the PUC last year, they had already achieved an RPS of 21.3%. So they already have 21.3% renewables. This was a state that was 90% fossil fuel. Now they're almost 22% renewables, and they had a goal of 20% by 2015. So therefore, it's not unreasonable to push the goal from the 2020 goal, which is 25% up to 30%. And like, let's just keep going. So 2030 is going to be a really big benchmark year that they could get 65% renewables. I mean, it's it's pretty astounding. So if you look at kind of the path that they're on, that's the most important thing is, can they meet meet these land, you know, the can they meet these milestones and get to that 100%? And the trajectory they're on suggests that they are, it's not going to be right away, it's 2045. But it's pretty amazing where they are now and where they had been. We shouldn't pretend this is going to be a cakewalk from a grid integration perspective, but I was struck by how possible everyone thought this was. HECO modeled a high renewable electricity scenario on the islands and found that 70% by 2030 was very feasible and it would provide great savings to ratepayers over the status quo. In fact, by 2030, the average monthly bill would drop from 220 bucks to below $170 under this high penetration, high DG scenario. This is the utility finding that. and Oh, no, this is without the undersea transmission cable, too. I mean, they think they can do it without having to do those yeah, big interconnections. Yeah, that's a DG scenario, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to sort of note, um, you know, some of the facts around the case, which, Catherine, you highlighted. I just want to make sure we emphasize them. You know, the fact that the Hawaii legislature is afraid of nextility is a big uh, sorry, next era next is a era. big deal. Yeah, and sorry, next era is a big deal, right? I mean, next era is credited for being this renewable energy company that everyone's supposed to love, et cetera. And they're actually really mean on renewable energy stuff for the regulated utilities. So I think that's really important. The second thing is that the fact that they got almost unanimous voting on this, I think there were only two people who voted against this bill. Um, is a really, really big deal. And I think the third thing is that, that I take away from this is how, um, you know, the, the lack of ambition. I mean, I think with all of the data here, it's absolutely possible for us to reach this 100% goal by 2030 or even earlier. Um, it's really just a matter of money. It's not a matter of technology. I think that's what we're all saying. And so what we're, the, the fact that, like, you know, that, that HECO and others actually want to drag this out to 2045 and force people to pay these $500 bills forever um, until then seems a little bit, um, you know, like uh, it really says something about the politics of this issue. So then what do you think the target should be? What is realistic in your eyes? So if you look at what Denmark was able to, to accomplish in 10 years or what Germany was able to accomplish in 10 years or, frankly, what President Kennedy was able to inspire us to do in 10 years, I think 10 years is the right number. I mean, you should be able to get this done in 10 years. I don't see why Hawaii would have a problem with getting all of this done, um, whether it's getting geothermal 
um, whether it's doing undersea cables, whether it's doing hydrokinetic tidal, whether it's doing solar, wind, whatever it is. I just can't imagine why it's not possible to do this financially or otherwise in 10 years. Well, they, they're going to review it every five years. So I, I could see them exceeding it pretty quickly. Plus, it's created this it, – well, there already was a huge market for, for renewable energy developers there. And you'll – you know, that's what Tesla's talking about. Hey, Hawaii is a market because it's super cost-effective to do renewables there. So I do think it could go faster. Um, and they're they're able to change it. I mean, they've already exceeded their expectations and are moving their targets up now. Yeah, and that right, issue you outlined, Jigger, is an inherent characteristic of almost every single legislated target out there. When you look at many of the state targets or you look at Waxman-Markey, the first few years for Waxman-Markey were actually calling for renewables targets under what had already been achieved. So this is not a problem with Hawaii. This is not a problem with one person's visionary leadership, this is, I think, an inherent problem in the legislative process when you create targets like this. Right. So that's why I'm trying to figure out, like, Catherine, I mean, do you think we've just lost the ability to do that? I mean, when President Kenny talked about 10 years or Lyndon Johnson talked about a war in poverty, they weren't talking about 40 years or 50 years. They were talking about 10 years. I just don't like it. Have we just lost the ability to do big things? No, I don't think we have. But I think this is the way sausage is made. And I, I actually have a lot of um, wanted to give a lot of credit to the Blue Planet Foundation that has really been working hard on this. They had um, an Earth Day contest where they had kids draw pictures of what did they want their island to look like by 2040. And they took those pictures and you can find them on their website at blueplanetfoundation.org. Um, and and they made this into a book, a coffee table book, gave it to every single legislature and legislator and the governor. And uh, I would love to see that happen for the rest of the country. I think it would it would be very impactful if people could see a vision. And I think part of the issue, Jigger, is that we haven't been able to paint a vision of the future. What would it look like? But Hawaii looks like they're they're trying to do that. And I think they'll get there. They'll probably get there a lot quicker. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Jigger. And uh you know, I'll be interested to see how quickly things evolve outside of the targets and if they adjust their targets. But it's certainly uh, something that a lot of people grapple with when creating mandates like this. And I actually think there's going to be a rush before the deal is sealed with NextEra because people want to get all this done. That's why they were able to pass all this legislation now is they want to get things done before the deal uh, is finalized. That is the end of the show, folks. Before we wrap it up, we will tell you something you do not know. And I'm going to go to you. Let's see. Jigger, we'll go to you on this one first. So I just want to, you know, express my deepest condolences to the folks who lost their life in the Philadelphia Amtrak uh, uh, derailment. I, I've taken that route a lot and um, still believe very strongly in, in rail and I think, you know, want to back up you know, Chris Nelder's point that I think rail is a really important way for us to reduce our oil consumption. Um, and I was disheartened to know that like, you know, just 24 hours after that crash, I mean, the U.S. House of Representatives cut funding for Amtrak. And so um, it's, 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 um, it's a heart-wrenching story, but it, it, it doesn't seem to bode well for U.S. rail. And over the years has continually punted on safety measures that potentially could have prevented that derailment. Yeah, I was on that train uh, coming back from New York, and it turned around, and that same train went up and had the crash. So it's pretty uh, – yeah, Jigger, you and I are on that a lot. I am too. Very scary. Catherine, what's your story this week? 
So a couple of things. We had talked a little bit about the King bill last week. Well, this morning I was at a hearing in Senate Energy and Natural Resources where they were marking up a slew of bills. So they have 57 bills that have been introduced on energy efficiency, grid modernization, and energy supply. And today they were looking at they had a hearing on 22 grid modernization bills. Um, they, they didn't specifically talk about 22 of them. But it's pretty interesting how the conversations are going. I would say some of the high points are that they're really serious about distributed generation and what are they going to do about it. It's sort of seen now as an inevitability and how do we write the rules so that it happens in a way that everybody's able to win. Um, now, different people have different ideas about how that would look. Um, there was also a lot on permitting um, natural gas, certainly, and oil permitting, but also renewable permit permitting. Uh, so those were those were pretty big issues. And I think something will get done this year. I think they will find something that has bipartisan support. It won't be huge. We already had one bill uh, to give a little love to the energy efficiency folks. We had one bill actually be signed by the president, the Shaheen Portman bill, the Energy Savings and Industrial Competitiveness Act that um, strengthens model building codes for buildings and starts a supply side, supply star program for manufacturers for supply chains, which seems like a pretty interesting concept and I think would be a good thing to do. So the things we've been doing are pretty modest, but are moving in the right direction. So I'm really hoping to see something come out of Congress this year in addition to that bill. Hell, it's a lot more movement than we've seen in the last couple of years. So you've got yes. your work cut out for you looking through all those bills. Yes. So I got a couple. One, a big thank you to all of our listeners who sent in ideas for solar in pop culture, in film, and TV. And there are so many obscure references. I was really amazed at how many there were out there. So thank you for helping me build my list. And we um, have a couple ways we might be using that. So stay tuned. Secondly is uh, a shout out to the Planet Money staff for their recent story on solar. I believe someone mentioned it on this show in passing, but Jacob Goldstein, one of the Planet Money reporters, uh, just a fantastic show and a fantastic reporter, put together a great program on how solar panels got cheap, on how financing got easier, how solar installers got faster at doing what they do. And it was just a very thorough and engaging story. I often find that reporters who don't have experience in a particular industry tend to get a lot of details sometimes obvious ones to those who are entrenched in it wrong. But this was a really solid story, and it captured the, the change in the solar industry very well, and it was super impressive, and I just want everyone to go and listen to it and support good journalism. Um, it's episode 616 on Planet Money. It's called How Solar Got Cheap. So kudos to that staff. I'm obsessed with that podcast, and I was glad to hear that they got solar right. That's going to mark the end of this installment of The Energy Gang. Thanks for being with us, and thank you very much to Renesola for supporting this show. If you want to find all of Renesola's products in solar, power electronics, and lighting, go to their website, renesola.us. If you want to find every episode we've ever done, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio, or visit greentechmedia.com slash podcast. I am so thrilled to see our numbers increasing every week and every month. So thank you for subscribing and passing on the word. Also, send us comments and questions uh, through our email, podcasts at greentechmedia.com. And Jigger, enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks. You too. Catherine, you as well. Have a nice weekend. Thanks. You too. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang. 
a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.